0: Welcome to the next podcast from Millinery Info. I'm your host, Lauren Ritchie. Today we welcome Katie Allen of Lifted Millinery to the podcast. Katie is based in Raleigh, North Carolina in the United States. I had such a wonderful time talking to Katie, I did forget to ask her about the story behind her label. So before we start, some information about Lifted Millinery. The brand was initially started in 2015 after working under a few names for costume work. Katie says, The original inspiration behind my name was largely due to my prior work in living history, as many of my designs were lifted from the pages of history. I was also thinking about headwear as elevating or lifting any ensemble it is worn with. Thank you so much to Katie for joining us for this episode. Thank you to our wonderful podcast sponsors for making this episode possible. Best Western Apollo Bay Motel and Apartments, House of the Dawn, Hatter's Millinery Supplies, Lifted Millinery, be Unique Millinery, Millinery Australia, Judith M. Millinery Supply House, Hats by Laker, Hat Academy, Louise McDonald Milliner, and Hat Mags. You can find a link to each of these businesses in our show notes. That's either in your podcast app or through our website. If you've been enjoying listening to this podcast series, I would like to invite you to sign up to show your support by becoming a patron of Millinery Info. This helps us continue to bring these industry insights through the podcast to you, please head over to www.patreon.com. It will show you the cost in your local currency. There's a small thank you to Milliner Info. It's about the same as shouting us a coffee per month while you're listening to the podcast, the Milliner Info you inspire me tier. For those who would like to say thank you for the business tips or insight you've heard through these episodes of the podcast all the way up to becoming a podcast sponsor. Thank you to all our current supporters for making these episodes possible. I hope you enjoy this episode with Katie. Hi, Katie. Thank you so much for joining me today for this Millinery Info podcast. It's lovely to get to chat with you. Shall we dive back to the beginning of how did you first become involved with millinery? Oh,
1: well, let's see. Oh, first of all, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I have loved the podcast for a long time. Um, Regularly listen to it and then go back and listen to other episodes again sometimes. Um, I started getting into millinery. Well, I fell in love with hats when I was, oh gosh, I I probably don't even remember the first time I fell in love with hats. It was like, you know, like age five, maybe the aha moment. Um, My mom was a big Rogers and Hammerstein movie musical fan so I watched endless hours of My Fair Lady and The Music Man and oh gosh anything anything on screen that had a score and uh, someone singing in it and they always had fabulous costumes and hats and I just fell in love with the hats I think Irene Malloy's hat shop and Hello Dolly was like my my happy place as a kid. Uh, I just wanted to live in there, be a little piece of furniture. Um, but then, let's see. So someone told me, well, you can't really make hats a career. Nobody does that anymore. And I was like, oh, <laughs> and, and I believed them, silly me. So. <laughs> So I ended up pursuing other things um, that allowed me to do, they were hat adjacent, I guess, is what you would call it. Uh, so I did a lot of theater in school. I um, was definitely one of those theater kids. And my mother was a, still is a fantastic seamstress. And so I sort of grew up learning to sew from her and um, got a lot of my basic garment construction knowledge from her um, so she really in two different ways started this love of headwear and construction um, it's it's all her fault
0: <laughs> I love that mom this is your fault and sugar mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, exactly <laughs> but you
1: know I think I think she somewhat enjoys it because <laughs> she's been my biggest supporter too one of my biggest supporters Absolutely. so it's it's been a good a good all around, uh, good trouble that we got into. Um, (laughs) And uh, she always used to take me to see musicals um, at uh, Shenandoah University, which ended up being where I went to school because I just fell in love with it from seeing the musicals constantly there over the summers. Uh, So let's see, so I did a lot of theater I worked in um, living history as a teenager. That was my, um, instead of working at Blockbuster or something, I I wore a corset and milked a cow (laughs) as my high school job. (laughs) It's a pretty cool high school job. (laughs) It was a really cool high school job. I absolutely loved it. It made my nerdy heart happy. And I got to wear all the clothes and bake bread in a brick oven and tell people how it was done. And of course, they had um, the costumer there uh, who made period reproductions for the various um, buildings that they had and, and farmsteads that yeah. they had at this living history museum. So I got to learn uh, the beginnings of, well, it, it founded the beginnings of um, my fascination with historic headwear as well. And so I, I picked up garment construction skills, some theatrical millinery, and then some living history. Um, costume know-how from all of that. And that was even before I went to college. So I was really lucky to have that as a good foundation to start with. Um, And then I went and studied costume design and technology in college and uh, had a minor in history as well. And I learned my first wireframe construction millinery techniques in college. Um, And I made a horrible hat for my first hat. I hope they didn't keep it. <laughs> I mean, you know, we all, we all, were so proud of that first hat and I still kind of am proud because it was the foundation, but I look back at it and go, oh, <laughs> my professor was, was millinery- generous with that grade. It's
0: <laughs> <laughs> going to ask about the professor actually, was millinery a unit you had to do or an elective or it just fell out as part of the course? It
1: was part of the course. This was in a time when the university was sort of still developing its costume design program. I mean, it was a a strong costume design program then, but it didn't have as much focus on building the accessories as it did on pattern making and just, you know, garment construction and costume design itself. So, but luckily I had some wonderful professors who would deep dive in with you And if you wanted to learn something or if they felt you were capable, they would take you aside and give you these little, you know, we're gonna do this today. And a lot of it, since we had very few costume design majors when I was there, a lot of it was independent study or one-on-one study with the professor, which was also beneficial to learning, you know, little tips and tricks. They got to kind of make up my syllabus as we went, which was nice. Wow.
0: And were they trained as a milliner or worked in millinery before, or was it about the exploration of it?
1: They were, yeah. they were trained in theatrical millinery, um, but probably not fashion millinery. Um, I think they probably have some know-how, definitely. Uh, and I would say they've probably absorbed more of it since I've been there. I mean, it's been, oh gosh, it's been like almost 20 years since I've been there that's 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 a strange thing to think about it's been 20 years since I've been there and so I'm sure it has changed and grown in fact I know it has because I've talked to them but um it was predominantly a theatrical millinery background
0: yeah that's really cool yeah um so from from college and creating and learning in that way what was next for you oh let's see so when I I
1: was all fresh-faced and out of school, I went and worked as a wardrobe supervisor. And I did that for several years in um, regional theater around the area. I absolutely love backstage. If I wanna go back to theater, I wanna go back to backstage. The energy is just fantastic. Um, It's it's so much more fun than kind of being shut up in a little hole by yourself, you know, cranking out designs for it. I just love, I love the backstage Mm -hmm. energy. Uh, So I did that for a long time, and I learned a lot from that about garment repair and storage and proper care techniques. Um, And that was also very, very valuable for me for what I do now. Uh, And then, unfortunately, when our economy kind of went south in 2007, I sort of read the writing on the wall and realized theater is not going to support me, unfortunately, (laughs) So I ended up getting, of all things, a job for Otis Elevator Company. And I know, (laughs) and and I was a project (laughs) leader for new elevator installation, which is a huge deviation. Um, But I kind of feel like if you have a theater degree, you can just about do anything because you're you're good at putting on that face and that character. (laughs)
0: Um, But uh, I did that for a while. I'm sorry. Improvisation at its best. Exactly, exactly. Just smile and look like you know what you're talking about.
1: (laughs) And um, I'm sure my bosses saw through all of that, but (laughs) but it was it was wonderful business experience. And I worked in sales for Otis Elevator for a while for their maintenance department, and that was just possibly my favorite part of that job because you just got to interact with the customers a lot which is what I really enjoy doing, which is just chatting about, chatting about what product I'm selling, which is now hats and a passion for me, but then it was elevators and while not a passion, just fun to have that personal interaction with somebody instead of being at a desk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I, I was, while it wasn't my dream job and it was very frustrating at times, it was very valuable in terms of learning business skills, and customer service. Um so I, I am very thankful that I did have that. Um during that time I was very frustrated though because I had no creative outlet, which I'm sure you understand. If you have no creative outlet as a creative, it you yeah.
0: <laughs> I get grumpy. Oh
1: I know I know. Yes. And my poor husband had to live with me during that time period. <laughs> so I started I I remedied that but luckily I was living in Wilmington, North Carolina and they have Screen Gems Studios there um, and they have a lot of theater as well and so there were a lot of outlets for me in my spare time to design shows for theater, make garments for it. Um, I I did some work for some independent film there, um, just kind of overhire type things like making petticoats, just tons and tons of petticoats for something. Uh, And then I started taking on private clients, which is sort of where I circled back around toward millinery, because one of the things that people had a hard time finding, uh, especially a lot of living historians in the area, was the millinery to go with their their costumes or their outfits or, you know, um, whatever they were looking for. So I just found that, you know, that little five-year-old girl really could make it work. It really could happen.
0: <laughs> she must have been so excited.
1: <laughs> it was, it was and my, my husband, I, he, he's he been a wonderful support. And I think he just looked at me w- one day and he said, okay, I don't care. Take some money from savings, go buy your hat making supplies and just do it. <laughs> so oh. I did, <laughs> I did. And it was, I've never looked back.
0: Oh, um,
1: I'm excited. And, I also had a wonderful friend who, um, I still sell my, um, my products, uh, through her store. She owns a vintage store in Wilmington and she was a big supporter too. She said, you just, just do it. Just do it. Basically what he said, just do it. You love it. Just do it. And she's been carrying everything ever since.
0: And when you were first, when he gave, he's like, just go do this. What mm-hmm. was the, did you have any supplies at all? Or what were the first things that you started collecting?
1: Oh gosh. Well, I had it? I had an immense amount of garment making supplies. I had my sewing machines, my serger. I had absolutely everything. I had no hablocks. I had very little buckram. I had no cinema. I, I had none of the blocking materials whatsoever. I had no stiffeners, nothing. And so I think what I did was I bought two different colors of cinema because I figure black and white. Let's do that. Let's try that. I bought some more buckram. I bought some wire and some sizing. And gosh, I don't even think I had blocking pins at that point. And I just kind of sat down. (laughs) I sat down at, at the kitchen table with a big wooden bowl from a thrift store and blocked my first cinema hat. And I had made I had made bonnets. Um, I had made so many different, you know, costume headpieces, wireframe, buckram shapes, cut and sew, but I had never blocked before. And oh, it was, wow. I probably steam ironed that poor cinema to death because, <laughs> because I was just <laughs> sure it wasn't going to adhere. <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
0: how did that first bowl hat
1: go oh the first bowl hat went well I actually still have that bowl and I have sold several hats made off that bowl still (laughs) oh I love that it's I you know I went through my blocks um not too long ago and and sort of got rid of what I didn't need and I actually ended up keeping the bowl which says something about (laughs) it's a good bowl (laughs)
0: A good eye, then that's great. Yeah. And so were you doing fashion hats right out of the gate, or did you dive back into more theater and costume work first?
1: Oh, it was kind of a ping-pong back and forth, basically. We had we have an event down here um called the Azalea Festival, at least when I was living in Wilmington, I don't live in Wilmington anymore. Um we had an event called the Azalea Festival, which is a big garden party. And I think I I started my hat making too long or my fashion hat making not too long before that party was and so someone ordered big flowery hat but then I want to say a month or two later I was back to making historic reproductions for somebody else so it was sort of a yo-yo until um, I really buckled down and made myself a website and made up some business cards (laughs) and
0: officially went for
1: it. (laughs)
0: And when you do the living history work, is there a particular thing that people are asking for, or what are you making for them?
1: Oh, it is, you know, it—it it is all sorts. Um, I have made, and, and what I love is that a lot of people for living history, you know, they can find a bonnet, they can find a felt men's hat, they can't find, um, for lack of a better word, the authentic, <laughs> fancy dress of the time period. A lot of the the reenactors that I work with will go to costume parties that are Regency themed costume parties or Victorian themed costume parties And and not just Victorian themed, but as if a Victorian were attending a costume party. And so the garment is constructed in the same way and they'll use fashion plates of the time period that depicted fancy dress. And so you have to make a headpiece to go along with that. And it has been some of the most fun projects I've had because they are so over the top. And yet they use, you know, you can't use plastics. You can't use materials that you wouldn't have had then. Everything is authentic um, to the time period or as wow, as close as you can get. So I've, I've had a lot of fun working with those pieces. I made a an Egyptian, I use Egyptian quotes, uh, style headdress for a Regency fancy dress ball. And it had clay Egyptian scarab beads on it and this beautiful gold mesh tubing covering it, like real gold and scarab beetle wings. And just, you know, as much authentic, uh, as many authentic materials as we could find for it. And it was fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) and I I I just put it on and wore it around for a little bit because it was just so much fun You should, yes
0: and when you're sourcing that kind of amazing materials is that something you're on the hunt for or when someone's got such a vision they might already have it for you
1: a lot of the time I end up going for the hunt uh going on the hunt for it and I think it's sort of uh you're shopping with somebody else's money which is something that I just love (laughs) doing Um, that, that's, that's one of the best parts of sourcing. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I've, I've always been a a thrift store, antique shop, rummage sale junkie. And, um, some, sometimes I have what I need and sometimes I, I get to go and pour over Etsy and eBay and auction sites to try and find it.
0: Do you have a lot of odds and ends, or I should say treasures, sorry, treasures <laughs> on hand? Do you see something and you're like, that's going to be brilliant for something? Or do you resist temptation?
1: Oh, I'm awful. I have way too many things. <laughs> I did before I started this and millinery just added another facet to it. Um, uh, to give you an idea, my so I started out with a ton of fabric. My husband. If I say I want to go into this fabric store, it'll just be a minute. He rolls his eyes and he'll go on to another store, and we'll see each other two hours later. <laughs> Perfect. Not, it sounds like right. he's
0: really got this down. <laughs> Who
1: knows? He understands. <laughs> he understands. But uh, yeah, I I cannot resist a a beautiful textile or uh, fiber or um strand of beads or just anything really. Uh, yeah, it's it's a disease. <laughs> and it's taking over my house. But you know, you never know when you'll need it. <laughs> and you
0: just might not be able to find it again. Exactly. Yes. Can you tell I'm an enabler? I'm yes. absolutely an enabler. No, this is the
1: validation that we all need as milliners, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, my my um, my studio. It looks it's not very sleek and it's not very polished. It looks more like a curiosity shop turned into a hat shop. It's a lot of hand-me-down furniture. I have an antique barrister's bookcase full of like beads and jewels and things. I mean, it's very eclectic. <laughs> so, and the attic looks that way too. <laughs> So yeah, I, and um, I've also I mean, taken over the entire upstairs of the house. Like we moved, I got a dedicated room for my studio, and continued to take over the entire upstairs of the
0: house. <laughs> so from Wilmington, where what um where are you now and what, what I was am the changes?
1: In Raleigh, North Carolina. So it was just about two hours north. Um, and my husband teaches philosophy, and he got a lovely new job. And so we moved up here um, with our girls. I have two little ones. Uh, and it's a wonderful place to be. It's a very diverse city. Uh, they have a lot of amazing arts opportunities and functions. Um, and I, I really couldn't ask for a better clientele in this area. It's just, it's just great.
0: That's amazing. And were you able to continue to create the same? type of work with that or did it did it change what you're making
1: um I don't think it changed what I was making Uh, I think I just because I was so much smaller when I was in Wilmington I just ended up with this natural progression that probably would have happened similarly in Wilmington but um I probably had more opportunity to do it in Raleigh just in a bigger city yeah
0: and so, your studio set up at the moment, you gave us a little insight for that. What was it like setting up that up? <laughs> oh, how, how do you work in it? <laughs> how do
1: I work in it? and about one foot of square space, not covered in stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have, so I have the, it's the top of my house, and I love it because I don't pay a studio overhead, which is wonderful. Um, and it is two rooms, or the top floor of the house is two rooms divided with a larger section and a smaller section. I started out in the smaller section, and uh, spilled out of the smaller section, and then we decided to move me into the big section, and then I kicked my husband out entirely of the big section. <laughs> he's he's long suffering and lovely. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, sound, I feel like we need to chat to him as well as opposed to podcast on Twitter.
1: <laughs> right, we need We need an outlet for husbands of milliners or spouses of milliners. I think there's a little support group yes, running yes. already. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and I've taken over the attic too. So I have this lovely space, but it does have a slanted roof. So it has um, eaves that I kind of have to contend with and it's a lot of wasted storage space. So I've been trying to not only build my space up on shelves, but also up the eaves. So I have my cinema stored diagonally down one side of the wall. And I love it because I have this rainbow wall that I work in front of um, in my studio. And then I'm going to try and put hooks up the other side for my hats. It hasn't quite happened yet, the the wall back there. But, yeah. and do you have
0: clients come into this space for consultations or how do you work with them through the process? I
1: do. Yes, I do have, I do have clients come up here. And so um, at first, I think they're a little unsure because they're walking up to my house, um, which could be a little, you know, you feel somewhat intrusive going into somebody's house, uh, but then they walk upstairs and it opens out into... I have sort of a showroom style area and then a, a proper workroom style area. So it is divided a bit and I try to tidy it up a little bit when they come, um, but they get upstairs and it's an immediate comfort feeling um, because it is, I like to think a bit like a house, but a bit like you know an antique store where there's just a lot to look at and it doesn't feel overly fussy. Um, have a a nice big armchair that I, you know, I like to have have everybody sit in and, um, I don't know. I just, I I like to feel like it's a cozy place. Uh, at least that's how it feels to me.
0: And do most people come visit you or do you do some online work as well?
1: I do online more so since the pandemic, I think we've all gotten more comfortable with zoom. Um, so I have a lot more clients willing to do zoom chats. Um, it might be, if they're at an extreme distance, then it might be just a Zoom chat. Um, If they're closer to me, it might be a Zoom chat to assess um, what they're looking for. And then we have an actual um, fitting uh, in person and then another Zoom chat for the finish up. Um, It's just kind of a mixture of everything, honestly.
0: And has having access to Zoom in that way changed how you work with them? Like, do you sketch for them? How does that development process work?
1: Yeah, I have sketched a lot more recently. Um, and and that is probably because of the pandemic. Um, but I also, I didn't used to offer it because I wasn't terribly confident in my own sketch work. Um, but then I took a class with uh, Rachel Richardson. Um, and... and the Milliner's Guild hired her to do a St. Catherine's Day special drawing class for us. And out of that, I I felt like I gained enough skills to start offering my customers drawings. And um, so I started doing that a lot more. I was very shy about it at first, Um, but as as I gained confidence in that, I've started to offer it more myself. Um, So if someone doesn't request it, sometimes I do offer it if we're at a distance. Yeah, And it's just easier to have that for someone to envision what it'll look like, because sometimes it can be difficult to communicate that.
0: Absolutely. So when's com- when someone's coming with these living, this is the, I love a fashion hat, but this living history thing's got me curious because we <laughs> in Australia don't necessarily have something like we have sovereign Hill, but not not in the way that you do in the U.S., um, are you how do you work that process do they have a, a particular vision for what they want are they coming with it how does it work let me ask an open question
1: uh, uh, for, <laughs> sure um so a lot of times people bring me fashion plates um from various magazines of the time period that they're looking at or sometimes I get sent oil paintings uh, not a whole oil painting a picture of an oil painting <laughs> picture of a picture. A picture. Uh, yes, yes. I get sent a picture uh, of paintings, sketches. Um, sometimes it, it, depending on whether photography was present at the period, I'll get some daguerreotypes. Um, but it, it's use, usually, if it's a period item, they're basing it off of a photograph or a fashion plate. However, some people do have extant garments that they will um, have in their possession. I just did Uh, a bonnet and three felt hats, no, four felt hats, four felt hats for a museum uh, called Mendenhall Place in Jamestown, North Carolina, and they wanted reproductions of hats that they had in their archives, and so I was able to go and measure and inspect and uh, really get a look at the hats that I was reproducing, and that was Invaluable, honestly, because I was so much more confident in what I was making, um, because of those measurements and because of handling the object itself.
0: What an amazing experience!
1: It was it. I, I, yeah, I could get lost in an archive. Um, one of my favorite things is to go to a museum archive, and and if the curator is kind enough, sometimes they'll have a program where they'll bring out garments for you to inspect or hats for you to inspect, and so. Um, that is just a wonderful, wonderful way
0: to learn a little bit more about millinery
1: too, is to visit archives.
0: You mentioned in there the Millinery Guild, the Milliner's Guild. You are a member. How did you first become involved with the Guild?
1: Oh, goodness. Uh, So I I learned about the Guild in 2018 when I went to Millinery Meetup in the US. Um, And I... I learned about it, met some members, um, actually ended up sitting at the dinner table with Sally Caswell and her husband, who was uh, joining her there, and had a lovely chat, and got to know her, and then I officially applied, that was October, I officially applied in January of 2019, um, and they had they had started expanding out. They used to be very New York-based, um, where it originated, and they had started expanding out to accept the uh, Membership all over the U.S. and so that um, that was a wonderful opportunity because we are so solitary as milliners. We we tend to work by ourselves a lot, and the U.S. just like Australia is vast,
0: <laughs> very large country.
1: <laughs> yes, and and so we don't often get the chance to meet and connect. And I was really craving that um, because. Uh, you know, it's just so na- coming from a theater background, I missed that workroom. I missed that um, team spirit uh, of working on a project together. Um, so the Milliner's Guild was really what I was looking, that's what I was looking for in the Guild. And it has exceeded my expectations <laughs> in terms of of that um,
0: and sucked me in. <laughs> I was gonna say so much so that you are now on the, the board or I mean, yes
1: yes um I joined the board in 2020 um little knowing what would be coming I agreed to take over social media also at the beginning of 2020 again little knowing what was coming, <laughs> and um I feel like that's that's when we really took off though um we, we doubled down as soon as the pandemic hit. We, we were planning some exhibitions and just had to stop everything in its tracks, regather, and decide how to approach this. And I mean, the, the membership was fantastic. Everybody was just gung-ho about let's, let's do more digital content, let's figure it out, and let's have some fun too because this was right before the Kentucky Derby, and so so many milliners in the U.S. were impacted um, because that's one of our biggest hat um, racing fashion seasons. And yeah, we all we all were out of business and um, sort of wondering what to do with ourselves. I think, and and some people, I mean myself included, were wondering what does this mean for the future of millinery. And so to Kind of keep our spirits up, keep everybody else engaged. Um, we started doing some online initiatives. Um, we did online for Oaks, which was uh, you know a virtual competition, much like Fashions on the Field did. They did the Fashions at Home. Yeah. Um, so we did Online for Oaks Day, and then we did Dressing Royal for Ascot, so that uh, people could put together looks based on you know royal attendees, which was a lot of fun um I actually I dressed up my daughters they're good sports and my youngest <laughs> I dressed her up like Lady Helen Taylor when she had that fabulous little blue um perching felt beret with the little stem and ask Racecourse actually re-grammed it and I was like oh my goodness <laughs> you're an girl <laughs> so.
0: we were perfect dressing up
1: yeah it was fun it was so much fun and and i think those those definitely brought us a lot of joy in a time where things were feeling very uncertain um and and we've we've just had we've been so lucky to have so many people with wonderful talents to bring to the milliner's guild um, and people who really believe in our mission which is promoting um you know the awareness an education of millinery in the United States, which is something that hasn't been in the forefront of fashion a lot lately. Um
0: yeah. yeah.
1: I don't know if that answered your question at all. That does. That's
0: (laughs) wonderful. (laughs) And uh what haven't I asked you? Covered so much. What else should I be asking
1: you? One of the things that uh was hard. And I, and I know I'm not alone in this, um, with the pandemic was, uh, your children being out of school. So a lot of <laughs> my entire millinery career, I've had to work around my husband's schedule and my daughter's schedule. And it, this started out when I was, um, a mom of very young children. And so my entire millinery career has been working around that which is challenging at times. And I know several other people have the same, you know, there are a lot of milliners in the same boat. Um, And so when anybody asks me, how long does it take to make a hat? I have no idea. I have no clue (laughs) because I do it in dollops. I can't, I don't, I don't have the time to sit down and go start to finish with a project, you know, just having meals and things in between, obviously, but I don't know how long it takes me to make things. And that is very difficult from a pricing standpoint.
0: Um, How do you manage
1: that? Yeah, that has been one of my biggest challenges. I will say is is appropriately measuring my hours for something, um, and I'm sure all working mothers could <laughs> could say that that's that's a workaround. Um, oh, go ahead. So
0: thinking you mentioned it when you were in your. Career tour mm-hmm. to, to Otis Lives. You mentioned yes. about the business skills that you picked up and the clientele relationships. What are some of the things you reflect on that you've been able to apply in your own business now?
1: A lot of bookkeeping and a lot of spreadsheets, <laughs> um, and also I guess the value of um, business communication skills. Uh, you know, being prompt with your communication, uh, how to professionally present yourself um, to someone who may be coming for a hat for the first time and has never ever ordered anything custom. I mean, it's, it's kind of a very foreign experience for some people, um, even hat wearing itself. And I think one of the nicest things that I've learned is how to I guess, how to communicate um, what's going to happen and how this is going to work. Um, Started out communicating it about elevators and now I do it about millinery. (laughs) Just sort of the, uh, you know, giving people a step-by-step breakdown. And I think the project management aspect of Otis really helped me with that um, because I can now effectively project manage myself. Now I don't get it right all the time, I get it right, maybe fifty percent of the time because because someone will say, "Mommy. And there goes my attention. But um, but it is nice to have that, that core skill to fall back on. And um, I can be very scattered. And so I think that helped me a lot.
0: Absolutely. Sounds like a great, great set of skills and to be able to transfer that knowledge, yes, That's incredible. Absolutely. <laughs> so what's something you're looking forward to working on that's coming up for you?
1: The Milliner's Guild will be releasing a new exhibition uh, mid-September, and it is centered around the 100th anniversary of the Straw Hat Riots in New York. Are you familiar with the Straw Hat Riots at all? I am, but let's
0: give a little context.
1: Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, So basically what happened is September 15th in the U.S. is known as Felt Hat Day. And that is the day historically you were supposed to change from wearing straw to felt. And back when society rigidly followed the rules, like we'll we'll say Edwardian era, um, people would get very, uh, very hostile about if you were still wearing your straw hat when it was now felt hat time. Uh, And so much so that in 1922, um, September 13th, I mean, there had been some incidences before this where people would knock straw hats off of each other's heads and smash them if they were wearing straw hats out of season, (laughs) (laughs) which we don't have that kind of fashion police now, but (laughs) woo. But they would, yeah, they would, they would, and the boater hat was the big one um, because the boater hat was a very universally worn hat. Um, Men wore it and it was an acceptable hat for a lot of classes at that time. And so boaters were one of the hats that definitely got the worst of it (laughs) in the straw hat riot. So September 13th, gangs of teenagers were going around New York and knocking straw hats off of people's heads. And it escalated. Um, and the police tried to break it up. And the riots would break back out. And there was fighting. And unfortunately, people were injured. And um, it was it was not good. <laughs> uh, so we are not commemorating the riotous part. We are commemorating the change. <laughs> and um, I, I guess we're we're bringing a little awareness to the history of headwear, um, which is something okay. that we enjoy doing with each event. Uh, we've done uh, uh, Wear the Gold Hat for when F. Scott Fitzgerald's um, work, Great Gatsby was released into the public domain. And we've done Solidarity in Style, celebrating 100 years of um, the suffragist movement in the US. So now, now we're doing another one for Straw Hat Riot. Um, but this year, or this time we're putting a a spin on it. Um, We are making a point to celebrate um, sustainable headwear and hat making, which is something that um, milliners are very good at. Uh, So we're highlighting the sustainability aspect um, for headwear with this one. And that'll be coming up in mid-September.
0: So exciting! Yeah. And are you making something special for this? I am making something special.
1: <laughs> I am, and I have to have it turned in in a couple of weeks. And I only have my shape made, so <laughs> there's a lot of work still to go on it.
0: <laughs> but that—that's that's sort of you know. project hmm? Oh, to say that sounds like such an exciting project. It is. It is.
1: And everybody's doing something a little different. Everybody's interpreting the theme in their own way. And that's
0: always so much fun to see. It's been so lovely to chat with you, Katie. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast today. And I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you very much. It's been lovely to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Millinery Info with Katie. Thank you to our wonderful podcast sponsors, Judith M. Millinery Supply House, Hat Academy, Best Western Polly Bay Motel and Apartments, Louise McDonnell Milliner, House of Dawn, is Millinery Supplies, Lifted Millinery, Be Unique Millinery, Hats by Lico, Hat Mags, and Millinery Australia. As always, you can find a link to each of these businesses in our show notes. That's either in your podcast app or through our website. If you've been enjoying listening to this podcast series, I'd like to invite you to sign up to become on Patreon of Millinery Info. Head over to www.patreon.com forward slash millineryinfo to sign up to say a small thank you to Millinery Info, Millinery Info You Inspire Me, or become a podcast sponsor. I'm your host, Lauren Ritchie. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode, and I look forward to talking hats with you again soon.